On August 29, 1935, Weatherman spotted a storm to the east of the central Bahamas. Three days later, it became a hurricane, a hurricane that struck the Florida Keys on the evening of September 2. Normal atmospheric pressure supports about 30 inches of mercury. This storm pushed air pressure so low, barometers read less than 26 and a half inches, the lowest measurement ever seen for a hurricane striking the coast of the United States. 150 mile an hour winds helped generate waves that rolled onto the islands. In one area, they caused damage to a bridge 30 feet above the normal waterline, and this in a place where most of the land is four feet or less above sea level. The wind gusted to 200 miles an hour and turned loose debris into projectiles. The storm threw passenger cars off the track of the Florida East Coast Railroad. On September 1, the Florida Keys was a string of islands with tropical beaches. It was a place aiming to be a tourist resort. Two days later, about half the population was dead or missing. This storm is the strongest hurricane to hit the United States since records began. But it was only an echo, a glimpse of another disaster that struck 4,000 years before. Four thousand three hundred years before the Labor Day storm struck the Florida Keys, after more than a century of boat building, Noah and his family boarded the ark, and that massive door swung shut behind them. And then, not much changed. I picture a crowd watching him climb the hill and go into the ship. They see the door swing closed. And I've got to think that people get a little nervous. They look around, wondering what would happen waiting for all the water Noah promised. But nothing. The sun still shone just as it always had. It rose the next morning. There were the blue skies, the afternoon breeze, weather as usual. It had to feel a little bit like the storms weathermen talk about that never show up. Storms that are hype rather than reality. And day after day went by like this. After Noah boarded the ark, there were seven days of normal. To people watching, it probably proved that Noah was nuts. Then came the eighth day. As I picture it, for people who didn't get on the ark, that morning started like any other. But it didn't take long for them to realize something was wrong. The world was too dim. The sun wasn't as bright as it should be. Going outside, they look up, and for the first time, there's something in the sky blocking the sun a dark gray cover stretching from one horizon to the other. They might not have known what it was because for these people, this would be the first they'd ever seen a cloud, the first overcast day. And as they stood staring up at it, they could probably see it growing thicker and darker by the minute. Thunderstorms form from air filled with water vapor. Warm, wet air, maybe above an ocean or coastline, rises and mixes with the cold atmosphere higher up. This builds clouds sometimes 10 miles high. Winds churn up and down through those clouds, creating turbulence. Updrafts, sometimes reaching 80 miles an hour, smash particles in the air together. Those particles rip electrons off of one another, creating enormous voltages, static charges that build up until the air 
can't hold back the energy anymore, and lightning lets loose. On this eighth day, maybe that's how the storm starts. Dark clouds, and then people watching as lightning starts to flicker inside them. Thunder rumbling after. And then the lightning starts to arc to the ground. Lightning storms are common today. About 45,000 of them happen around the world every day. But I wonder if this storm was more intense than average. The best example could be the one you get at the mouth of the Catatumbo River on Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela. In that spot, for 300 days out of every year, just after the sun sets, a lightning storm begins. From that moment, lightning will strike the lake about every two seconds, around 28 times a minute, for up to nine hours. Imagine that kind of lightning. But instead of focusing on the mouth of one river, just one small area, the whole sky lights up in this firestorm. Lightning can heat the air to five times the surface temperature of the sun. When it strikes a tree, if the tree is lucky, the energy will flow along the surface, rippling down across the wet bark and into the ground. If the tree is less lucky, the electricity tunnels inside the trunk, boils the water within, and blows the tree apart. Imagine watching as the lightning starts to arc from those flickering clouds and seeing it hit these 300-foot-tall redwoods, trees that might have been growing since the third day of Earth's history. Lightning strikes them, and they burst, showering splinters of wood down on everyone below. Think of that happening all around you, a ring of fire. And I wonder, as it was going on, if anyone glanced in the direction of the ark looked up at that boat built by the crazy hermit. And I wonder if this is when they started to have second thoughts. If the storm started with lightning, that was just prologue. Because at some point, around the drum roll of thunder and the crack of trees being blown apart, there'd be this rushing sound. I think of it almost like static. This is the rain. Genesis says, quote, The windows of the heavens were opened. End quote. Visibility probably drops to just a few feet. The rain cuts off any view of the ark. And from this point on, it separates everyone in the world into little groups, each of them facing the storm on their own. When you look for the heaviest rain in history, two stories come up. One occurred in February of 2007 on Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean, where a storm there dumped more than 16 feet of rain in just four days. If a person six feet tall stood outside in that storm, they'd be waist deep in 18 hours. The other storm is smaller, but it rained harder. That one happened on July 4, 1956, when a cloudburst in Unionville, Maryland dropped 1.23 inches of rain in just one minute. If that rain had kept it up, you'd be waist deep in half an hour. Reunion Island, Unionville, these are the record holders today. Rainstorms that were something less like a shower and more like a waterfall. That's what I see here when Genesis talks about the windows of heaven being opened. But as awful as that would be, that's only part of what's going on in this storm. The terror people faced that day, it didn't just come from above, it also welled up from below. Because Genesis says the, quote, fountains of the great deep burst forth, end quote. 
When I think of water coming up from underground, the pictures that come to mind are springs and geysers. Natural springs are just places where water flowing underground breaks through the surface. Geysers are areas where superheated water builds up pressure and jets into the air. That's the closest we get today for fountains of the great deep. But when you pause to think about what's happening here, you realize there's more than just water involved. When you tear the earth apart to break open these fountains, more than water comes out. When the ground splits, you get volcanoes. On February 20, 1943, Dionisio Pulido, a farmer in Mexico, was working in his cornfield when a crack in the ground nearby bulged up and split open. He later said he heard a hiss and saw smoke come out of it. Within a day, what had been his farm was a volcano towering 150 feet tall. For some people on that eighth day after Noah entered the ark, as the clouds gathered overhead, I picture them looking down rather than up. Instead of watching the start of a global lightning storm, maybe they looked at the crust of the earth, something they'd probably always thought of as solid and trustworthy and reliable, something unbreakable. They looked at it and maybe saw it heave up and tear open. Maybe they heard that hiss of gases escaping into the air and were hit with a wave of hydrogen sulfide, the smell compared to rotting eggs. Researchers were there in the spring of 1980 when Mount St. Helens exploded. The sound could be heard 300 miles away. Parts of the mountain rocketed across the ground at 200 miles an hour, destroying hundreds of homes and 200 square miles of forest. The eruption of Mount St. Helens is a well-known event. But in the history of the world, that explosion is small. Just over a century earlier, Krakatoa, a mountain in Indonesia, sent 20 times more ash into the air. 70 years before that, Tambora, also in Indonesia, blew up and fired the ash of 120 Mount St. Helens into the atmosphere when it ripped open a crater 3.7 miles across. The eruption of Tambora killed around 10,000 people right away, and another 80,000 later from starvation and sickness when crops couldn't grow. And this is something to notice about volcanoes. They don't only affect people nearby. In 1991, when Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted, it was only about three times the size of Mount St. Helens, but it sent enough ash and sulfuric acid into the upper atmosphere that over the next 15 months, global temperatures dropped an average of a full degree Fahrenheit. These volcanoes all erupted in the last two or 300 years, but all of them pale in comparison to what might have been going on in the world on this day, when the earth broke open because the scars in the Earth's crust show evidence of even larger, ancient volcanoes. One example comes from New Zealand, where there's evidence of a volcano that was about three and a half times larger than Tambora. And even it was small compared to another in what is today Yellowstone in the United States, which was more than 16 times bigger. That's nearly 2,000 times the power of Mount St. Helens in one volcano. I think these are what tore through the crust the day the world ended and the flood began. I'm trying to put a picture together here. The storybook version of the flood is just about the ark and lots of water. It leaves out these other pieces, the lightning, the panic of rain that never stops, the terror of volcanoes. And that would have been the story of the flood for people caught in it all around the world. It's hard to put ourselves into their shoes, into the shoes of someone facing a volcano. 
but sometimes we do get a glimpse of what that was like. In 79 AD, Vesuvius, a mountain near the Bay of Naples in Italy, exploded. The eruption buried the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum in ash, sealing them off from the world. In 1748, excavators rediscovered Pompeii, and with it they found these unusual cavities, holes in the ash. It turned out that these hollow areas were places where people and animals, sometimes horses, had been buried in the eruption, and only the skeletons remained. The researchers started mixing up plaster and pouring it into these pockets, and then digging through the ash to get the shapes out. And what they got were statues of people frozen in the positions they died in. There's men found lying in a cellar, clenching their hands. There's another of a person crawling beneath the poisonous gases, trying to escape. Outside, four people, a man and three women, were running down an alley when the volcano caught them. Try to imagine having that same picture into the past, but for people here who faced the flood and watched the whole world come apart. Picture hundreds of thousands of people standing there as a volcano rises up out of the ground in the middle of a city, the ground splitting, fissures opening in the streets. Think of seeing those clouds of gas and ash sweep toward them. For many people, that, that would have been their last memory. Others, farther away, they might see the mountain explode, but avoid the cloud of ash. Instead, those people had to face the fallout. Volcanoes emit sulfur and nitrous oxides that react with oxygen and water to make acid rain. Rain that can come with a pH as low as 3. And if that's not worrying enough, there's also something called acid fog. Take in the scene at this point, the atmosphere around you full of water and ash and smoke, the ground seething with lava, rain sizzling when it hits. And then remember that this might still be day one, just the opening act. What happens when all of that goes on, when it goes on through the night and the next day and the day after that? What happens when the water that's been pouring down like a waterfall starts to flow together and accumulate? Six inches of flowing water can knock a person over. Two feet will wash most cars away. Rivers and lakes that used to contain all the runoff from smaller streams, they start to fill and burst. In 1931, heavy rain and a silted-up riverbed let the Yangtze River in central China climb over its banks. It flooded the river valley and forced 500,000 people to flee to higher ground. In 1959, just five years after it was built, part of the Malpasa Dam in southern France, cracked. It let loose close to 200 feet of water that surged down through the valley. The wave derailed a train and twisted the track into a spiral. A farmer on a hillside recalled watching a car try to outrun it, only to see the water catch up, wash over, and engulf it. By the time the wave hit the town of Frejus, the water was only 15 feet deep. But just that much was enough to throw cars into the sides of houses. It was enough to wash into second-story windows and sweep people against the walls. It was enough to suck a boy out of his home. That's what might be happening here as the rivers overflow and the lakes break loose, sending muddy water full of debris coursing through the valleys, washing away people and homes and roads and villages. But maybe, on that day as the rain came down, some people were like that farmer watching the car. 
They were up on a hillside, above it all. Floods are really only dangerous to people in the valleys, right? But then, as the rain keeps falling, the ground begins to saturate. Hillsides shift, and the ground starts to slide. In the 1800s, slate mines near the city of Elm, Switzerland, opened up cracks in the side of a mountain, including one large one in 1876. Those cracks were ignored, and for five years, everything was fine. Then, in 1881, after two months of rain, the mountainside broke free. The equivalent of a nine-foot-thick mass of rock and dirt, a mile long and a mile wide, pounded down into the valley. It wiped out the village and killed 150 people. And the landslide continued until it reached 900 feet up the mountain on the opposite side. In another example, in Latuya Bay, Alaska, in 1958, the side of a mountain split off and fell into the water below. The impact of all that rock crashing down sent up a shockwave that tore away trees growing 700 feet above sea level along the surrounding slopes. The water itself splashed over a third of a mile high. That's a splash that would reach 300 feet higher than the tip of the Empire State Building. The water flooded the valleys first, but the people on the hills weren't above danger. As the rains soak in, the ground, you can imagine, breaks away. Homes and buildings are caught in these landslides, land avalanches, where trees, rocks, animals, and people are thrown together and tumbled, plunging down into the valleys filled with water and debris, places where nothing can survive. As the days of rain turn into weeks, this happens in more and more places. All over the world, civilization is crumbling. Earthquakes at sea send tidal waves smashing into cities on the coasts. Rivers and flash floods ravage inland valleys. Eruptions of ash and acid rain rip trees out of the ground and kill and strip the leaves from every green plant. And these sites are probably the last things millions of people see. But even then, there are the survivors. The people who avoided the volcanoes, who dodged the landslides. They might have witnessed these things, watched mountains explode and buildings collapse. But for them, the constant through all of it would have been the rain and the rising water. Always the rising water. In the days since the storm began, I wonder if the obsession constantly on their mind was the rain and the water, the flood that got deeper and closer with each passing hour. If this was happening in the world today, what would we do? How would we try to survive? Would we turn to technology, try to build last-minute dikes to hold back the storm? Maybe we would try to do a quick copy of what Noah did, put together emergency lifeboats, emergency arcs. Maybe people here did the same thing. They turned to their gods of technology, perhaps the metalworking Tubal Cain pioneered. Or maybe there were other gods they'd invented that they hoped would save them instead. Genesis doesn't say. All we know is that their plans didn't work. The water washed away any dikes, overturned any boats, smashed and buried all their idols. You have to wonder what people thought when after a week, after two weeks, after three, the storm didn't die down. You have to wonder what they thought when the valleys turned from flowing rivers into small seas that divided the land into separate islands. And even that wasn't enough. 
because amidst the earthquakes and the pouring rain, the water kept coming, and each island kept getting smaller and smaller. Picture that. Imagine being wet to the bone, hungry from days without food, and climbing a hill, always looking back over your shoulder, hoping that the water will stop. You look back and you see the waves reflected in each flash of lightning. You hear the splashing. It's getting closer, always closer. You see glimpses of bodies and animals and people churning on the water. I have to think some people here lost it. The natural disaster version of shell shock. They just sat down and waited for it to get them too. On the other hand, some people probably tried to stay above the rising tide. But there came a point when there were no hills left to climb. When the people who'd survived the longest were at the highest peak of the tallest hill. And all they could do was watch as the water followed them up there, as it washed at their feet, pulled on their legs, and swept them away. But that's just a guess. It's just what I imagine happened. Because of all the disasters in history, we can only speculate at what happened to the people who went through this one. Because there were no survivors. No one who could tell the story. After 40 days and nights of rain, everyone who'd refused to listen to Noah's warning, probably billions of people, were dead. Genesis emphasizes that point. It says, quote, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swimming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. End quote. This piece of the story, weeks of terror followed by the death of nearly everyone in the world, this makes you wonder about God. Was God being fair? Did the punishment here fit the crime? Is this what you would expect the kind God, the God of love, described in the Bible to do? It's hard to understand, especially since we don't have many details about what the world before the flood was like. We know there was murder and polygamy, but other than that, Genesis only gives general statements that the world was wicked, that it was corrupt, that it was evil all the time, and it leaves us to fill in the gaps. To get a better idea of what people before the flood might have been doing, I want to jump ahead in history to something similar that comes about 900 years later. In that story, God orders the destruction of a specific group of Phoenician kingdoms who lived along the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. There's a parallel here. God orders the destruction of both these kingdoms and the people who lived before the flood. But we know a lot more about what the people in those Phoenician kingdoms were like, what they were doing. We have details in the Bible, the writings of ancient historians, artifacts from archaeologists. And if the people living before the flood were anything like the ones in this group of kingdoms, it gives us a picture of the kinds of things God might have been trying to stop. And it's not a nice picture. Before I get into it, I should mention that the details here are not for the squeamish. I don't want to be too graphic, but I do want to give you a sense of what might have been going on. In these Phoenician kingdoms that God ordered destroyed, Religion was a fundamental part of life. It was everywhere. 
There were a variety of gods who had temples in cities, on mountains. There might be certain sacred rocks or spots along rivers or special groves of trees. And the gods these people worshipped, well, they weren't the role models you want for your society. First, there's Baal. I've talked about him before. He's the god in charge of storms and fertility. The stories about him include fighting a sea monster to become king of the gods, being petty and jealous of the palaces of the other gods until he gets his own, and mating with a cow and fathering a calf. That's the leader of your civilization. That's who you worship. Next, besides Baal, there's Asherah, the mother goddess, and sometimes, apparently, Baal's consort. She may be the same thing as Astarte, and if so, she was the goddess of love and war. In Phoenicia, if you went to Astarte's temple, you'd probably find prostitutes on the staff there. Jealousy, incest, bestiality, prostitution. These were the things the Phoenicians modeled their society on, the things they aspired to do. Then there were the sacrifices. You probably aren't surprised to picture the Phoenicians offering animals as sacrifices. But they didn't just bring animals. They also brought their children to sacrifice to the gods. Records talk of them lighting a fire inside a metal idol, laying the child on the idol's hands, and in one way or another, roasting it alive while they pounded on drums so you couldn't hear the screams. This is the stuff nightmares are made of. And you might not want to believe it. You might think it's all exaggeration. But we find evidence. Carthage, an ancient city in North Africa, was founded by the Phoenicians, settled by people right out of these other kingdoms. And archaeologists have found specific graveyards with the remains of children. And some of the remains even come with inscriptions, suggesting these were the pieces left over from an offering. The bits left after babies were sacrificed to the gods. If the people living before the flood were doing these same things, sacrificing children to idols, boys and girls that God created in his own image, God had every reason to be furious. But that's not the reaction Genesis talks about. If you look at the story, it says God looked down at the world and saw that everything was wicked. But then it says that God was, quote, grieved in his heart, end quote. In this story, everything that's happening on the earth, it doesn't make God angry. It makes him sad. And watch what God does next, because he doesn't do something sudden. God's reaction here is patience. Rather than bringing the flood and destroying the world right then, God puts it off for 120 years. God gives everyone time to change their minds, a second, third, fourth, a hundredth chance to stop what they're doing and come back to him. Compare what God does here to the story you get of the flood from ancient Babylon. In their version of it, the gods get annoyed because the people on earth make too much noise. So they hold a council and decide to kill everyone with a flood and they want to keep the whole thing a secret. The only reason any human survives is because one god broke the rules and warned them. That's not what God does in Genesis. He's patient. He doesn't want people to die. When Cain killed Abel, God put a mark on him so other people wouldn't come to kill Cain. He waited 120 years before the flood, giving everyone a chance to hear the warning. And if you fast forward to these Phoenician kingdoms who sacrificed children to idols, 
four centuries before God ordered their destruction, he said he was waiting because they weren't all bad yet. When you take this detail into account, God's patience, you realize that as horrible as these crimes might have been, none of that was the real issue. Greek mythology has plenty of immorality. Egyptian stories do too. The Romans buried people alive as human sacrifices. We don't have God calling for them to be destroyed. So maybe what people did wasn't the core problem here. Instead, what set apart the Phoenicians and the people who lived before the flood, perhaps what made them unique, wasn't what they did, but maybe their unwillingness to change. God gave them chance after chance, waited hundreds of years, but they wouldn't quit causing pain and suffering. If they had, maybe things would have been different. But they refused to change. They refused to stop the violence. Today, people treat God destroying the world as something like a genocide, something only an evil God would do. But that ignores what was going on. If everyone in the world was bent on slaughter, on torture, if they spent all of their time devising new ways of causing pain, if God had let that go on, wouldn't we think he was being cruel then too? God loved the people, but ultimately, when they wouldn't change, he needed to step in to stop the things they were doing. And in the case of the world before the flood, God waited until it had gotten so bad there were only eight people left who still followed him. And you can imagine those eight, people hated by everyone else in the world, were being hunted. People who wanted to follow God were an endangered species about to go extinct. God waited as long as he could before stepping in to stop the cruelty. And when he did, the flood wasn't overkill. It was the minimum needed to slow down the cancer. These people destroyed the world God made. And now, God unmade the world and destroyed them. That is the story of the first days of the flood. It's the story of God putting an end to people who were so committed to cruelty that they never would have quit. Then comes the rest of the story. With the world covered in water, Genesis says, quote, Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. End quote. And with no one left outside the lifeboat, this becomes the tale of what happened to the few people inside it, the only people left. They waited in the ark while the world washed away. Now it's their turn to face the storm. This episode was a long time coming, but I worked on part two at the same time, so expect that one soon. With the world wiped clean, the next episode is the story of one boat and the last eight people on Earth. Until then, if you want to dive into any details about the flood, WiderBible.com has articles, references, and links to get you started. There's also a place on the website for asking questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schull. Thanks for listening.